0: Morning. If you'll open your Bibles this morning to Mark eight, and we're going to read verses twenty-seven through thirty-eight. Starting at verse twenty-seven, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, "Who do people say I am?" They replied. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If any anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him, and when when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels.
1: Today we're going to talk about pivotal points, turning points. I would guess that we all have experienced them throughout our lifetime, especially those of us who are adults who have lived more life. We could look back and see what's called a pivotal point, and probably a number of them, maybe a few, but those are turning points. Those are times in our life where something happens or we make a decision, and It is such a pivotal decision, such a turning point happening that it has a great impact on the direction of our life from that time on. It could be a harmful impact or it could be a very good impact. But it's a pivotal point. I've had a number of them in my life. Back in uh, the fall of my second year at Oak Hills Bible College, Janine and I were dating. She wasn't at school that year. And she had given me permission to take my time, just kind of thinking through if um, I was going to be all in in this relationship. I needed time to think about it. And, of course, as she's known to say, what is there to think about? But I had things to think about before I made that kind of decision. And it was this fall evening that she came to school to visit me. And we went on a walk. And we were on this footbridge going from the campus across um, part of the lake to an island. And we were talking about this very issue. She wanted to know what I had decided. And uh, <clears throat> I continued to give her the same answer. I was still thinking about it, um, that type of thing. And there on that bridge that night, she came up to me and she grabbed my shirt and she pushed me up against the railing of the bridge. <laughs> and she said, Marlon, I've given you enough time. <laughs> you have to make your decision. And that was a pivotal point. I made my decision. <laughs> and I decided that I was all in in this relationship. And uh, that was a turning point because a few months later we were engaged. And now 47 or so years later we're still married and enjoying each other. But that night on that little footbridge, I can look back at that as a pivotal point in my life, in our life. Uh, Another pivotal point in my life was there at Oak Hills Bible College in the chapel. Right after a chapel service one day, after a man named Victor Ernst had spoken, I found myself on my knees in front of the chapel telling God I'm all in with him telling Jesus that I would serve Him, whatever that meant. And it was a turning point. It was a pivotal point in my life. It was that important. Uh, In the fall of 1979, Janine and I made a big decision. Were we going to uh, pack up and and move our two little kids and our collie dog to embarrass Minnesota uh, to a church that was just starting? Or are we going to stay... At a church that was growing and uh, we had been at serving for six years and the decision we made was a pivotal one Uh, we ended up here and uh, have been here 40 plus years and then uh, just a few years ago in 2017 in the summer we made the decision to move my parents from their farm here on the iron range And that was a pivotal point because it changed our whole life for the next two years. And uh, those are just four examples. And, And you could relate if we had a little sharing time here. As you look back, these reference points in your life, these pivotal points, turning points, you made decisions, something happened, and it had a great impact from then on. To harm, to hinder, or to uh, provide blessing and, and some great things. Today, when we come to Mark chapter 8 in our series, Mark in his presentation gives us a pivotal point in how he presents Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, if you do the math, chapter 8's almost right in the middle of Mark. There's 16 chapters. So Mark's pivotal point that he presents is kind of right in the middle of his gospel. And we're going to see a pivotal point for the disciples, a turning point for them. And we're going to see a pivotal point, I think, a turning point for Jesus in this chapter. So let's pray and then we'll we'll look at that. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how Mark presents him. Thank you for what we're learning, being reminded of concerning our Lord and Savior. Father, we want to learn more today. Father, as we look at this pivotal point in in the experience of the disciples, and even with Jesus, pray that it would cause us to think about turning points in our lives as well. We ask Your Spirit to just work through the truth of Your Word and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing we're going to do, because I think it's important here in the book of Mark, thinking that Mark is especially presenting Jesus to the Roman person, the Roman thinking person. We've kind of alluded to that as we've gone through the book. I want to point out something before we actually look at this pivotal point. On your study sheet, there's a map, and I want you to look at that because I want you to follow this. What we find happening at the end of chapter 7 and into chapter 8 of Mark is there's an expanding of the boundaries for Jesus' ministry. He expands his territory of ministry. And that is crucial here as far as Mark's purpose in presenting Jesus. For instance, in chapter 7, starting in verse 24, we find that Jesus takes his disciples up to a place called Tyre, um, an area of, around the city of Tyre. If you look at your map, Tyre is up in the left top corner. And what you want to see there is that when Jesus takes his disciples up to the area of Tyre, He's taking them out of Israel. Most of His ministry in the book of Mark has taken place in Israel, especially in Galilee, mostly around the Sea of Galilee. But now at the end of chapter 7, Mark says Jesus goes up with His disciples to Tyre. So He's going out of Israel. And the passage there describes this Gentile Greek woman up there who comes to Jesus and asks him if he would free her daughter from demonic control. And Jesus does. Then, starting in verse 31, we're told that Jesus leaves the vicinity of Tyre. It goes through Sidon and down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you look at your map, the Decapolis is a whole region to the east of the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee. It's in big capital letters. You can't miss it. It's the Decapolis. The word means ten cities because there were ten cities in that region. It was a Gentile region. And so, once again, Jesus and his disciples are outside of Israel. They're in the Decapolis. And if you read on, starting in verse 31, you find that Jesus heals a man who couldn't speak, he couldn't hear. He heals this Gentile man in the Decapolis. Then, as we start chapter 8, He's still there with His disciples in the Decapolis, Gentile territory. And if you read the first part of chapter 8, there is a miracle. Crowds have gathered. He's been teaching them there in this Gentile area. And they've been there so long, Jesus says, they're hungry, we have to feed Him. And it's like deja vu. Jesus miraculously from a little bread and a little fish, feeds 4,000 or more people. Gentiles in the Decapolis. Remember he fed 5,000 miraculously in Galilee? Jews? This is in Decapolis. It's outside of Israel. Now why is that significant? Mark knows what he's doing here he he has a reason for how he is presenting Jesus. He has in mind primarily the Roman person. And lest up to this point the Roman person who's been introduced to Jesus begins to think that Jesus is for the Jewish people only. Because all his ministry so far in Mark's Gospel is in Galilee, in Israel. And he's been casting out demons from the lives of these Jewish people. He's been healing the diseases of these Jewish people. He performed this miracle, defying the laws of nature, feeding 5,000 Jewish people. And now Mark shows Jesus going up to Gentile territory and casting out demons from the lives of Gentiles. He shows Jesus going to the Decapolis, Gentile territory, healing Gentile people, and performing the same kind of miracle with the bread and fish to feed Gentile people. Do you see the significance of that to the primary recipients of this Gospel? I think it's, it's wonderful. Mark wants them to know that this Jesus he's introducing them to didn't just come for the Jews. Gentiles too, because the Romans, if that's his primary audience, are Gentiles, right? They needed to see this. And so even though we might kind of skip through these three um, accounts, they are significant to the reader's. Well, then we come to what Don read for us in our main passage for today. It starts in verse 27 of of chapter 28. And Jesus continues this trend. He's been up near Tyre, Gentile territory. He's been down and over to the Decapolis, Gentile territory. Now in verse 27, it says, He and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, Find that on your map? North, to the right, top, Caesarea Philippi. He's out of Israel. Up in the Syrian area, kind of. So he's still in Gentile territory. And he brings his disciples up there and Jesus knows what he's doing, right? So I want you to Learn something about Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place, an area that carried with it the remembrance, the history, the source of many world religions at that time. Ancient history says. That the worship of Baal, you remember Baal in the Old Testament, one of the most common foreign gods that Israel had to contend with, B-A-A-L, Baal? Ancient history says that the religion of Baal, the worship of that god, began up in the area that was called at Jesus' time Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was important to the Greeks at that time because they believed that there was a cave in Caesarea Philippi where the Greek god Pan was born. He was born in this cave in Caesarea Philippi. And Pan, in Greek mythology, was the god of nature. And so to the Greeks and their mythology, their religion, Caesarea Philippi was important. In Caesarea Philippi, in that area, there was a marble temple constructed for the emperor Caesar. Thus it was called Caesarea Philippi. You see, the Romans believed that the emperor was a god. And along with other Gods, they worship the emperor. And so in Caesarea Philippi, there was this big, beautiful reminder of that. Marble temple to Caesar. Now with that in mind, Jesus is about to ask a turning point, pivotal question of his disciples. And to ask them that question, He is not going to have them come with Him and sit along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's not going back from the Decapolis to Israel. To ask this question, He again takes them to Gentile territory where they are going to be now surrounded by the visual reminders of all these gods of the world that all these groups have and were worshiping. And surrounded by that, he's going to ask them a big question, a turning point question. So let's look at that. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So that's question number one. Guys, what are you hearing? As we've been going around, what are you hearing people say? Who do they say I am? Verse 28, they replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others say you're one of the prophets. Those were very common uh, opinions people had of who Jesus might be. And the disciples were hearing that. And so that's their answer. But then in verse 29, and I can just see him maybe walking along with them when he asked the first question, but I picture him then stopping and looking right at them. And he says, but what about you? Okay, that's what you're hearing other people say as to who I am. But now it's time I want to hear it from you. What about you? Who do you say I am? It was time to answer the question. They had been with him. They had seen much. They had heard much. And now it was time. Surrounded by all that Caesarea Philippi reminded them of. Concerning the gods of the world, he says, Who do you say I am? And Peter, as he usually did, speaks up for the the guys. And he says at the end of 29, You are the Christ. That is a big statement. Jesus, we believe you are the Christ. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the anointed one of God. You are no ordinary man, Jesus. You are divine. You are the Christ. God in the flesh. They got it. Finally, right on. And Jesus just says, don't tell anybody yet. I think it's because if they started telling everybody, uh, it would stir up the opposition too soon. But what a turning point for the disciples, right? What a pivotal point for those guys. They have now declared that they understand the truth about who Jesus is. You are the Christ. And then there's a pivotal point for Jesus. Another turning point. Upon hearing their answer, their declaration, the right one, the truth, Notice verse 31. He then, after they made that declaration, began to teach them about the plan, about the mission. He hasn't talked about this yet. But now that they have reached their pivotal point and declared who Jesus is, and they're right, He's the Christ, now He pivots. And he begins to teach something he hasn't to this point. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Here is where Jesus begins to tell the disciples about the mission, the plan. And notice what it involves it involves him suffering, it involves him being rejected by the religious leaders, it involves him being killed, not dying. Being killed, that means it's at the hands of somebody else. And it involves a resurrection. Four things. That's the plan, right? That's the mission. And here's the turning point where he reveals that to his disciples. And, of course, Peter hears that. And it says in verse 32, he spoke it plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's Peter's response to Jesus now sharing the plan. And Peter takes Jesus aside. And I don't know how he did that. Maybe he just grabbed Jesus' arm and pulled him. Jesus, come here. I don't know how he did that, but he took Jesus aside. And Mark says he actually rebuked Jesus. That's strong. Rebuked him for what? For what he had just said. That he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. He's going to rise again. It doesn't sound like Peter really heard the fourth one about rising again. He's stuck on the first three. He's going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And he takes him aside and he rebukes him. So what do you think he said to Jesus? Mark just says he rebuked him. Remember, in this series, we can't cheat and look at other Gospels. <clears throat> Probably he said things like, Jesus, you can't say that. What are you talking about, Jesus? That's not going to happen to you. Jesus, you're ruining the moment. We just declared that you're the Christ. We believe it. This is impossible, Jesus. You're the Christ. Stop talking like that. Probably said something like that. Or maybe even said, we're not going to let it happen, Jesus. But he rebukes him for what Jesus shared. And then Peter gets rebuked right back. (laughs) He rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him. Verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And it's a strong rebuke. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't personally think he was calling Peter Satan. I think he was indicating that Satan was involved in that response by Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, you're talking like a man. All you're thinking about is what you want and what you don't want. And I've just shared with you the things of God. I've just shared with you God's plan. And so he rebukes Peter. And then he goes on to do something Mark has not recorded so far. He takes this opportunity. He invites other people that apparently had kind of come along and gathered. So now both his disciples and a crowd is going to hear this. But for the first time, Mark is going to record Jesus specifically revealing how to obtain salvation. The only thing Mark has recorded that comes close to that. So far, it's way back in chapter 1 when he said Jesus went out proclaiming, repent and believe. Other than that, Mark hasn't recorded anything Jesus taught about salvation. But in this situation, he does. So let's see what Jesus says. He called the crowd to Him along with His disciples and He said this. Now, I know that there's all kinds of details we can get into, all kinds of figuring out and trying to understand this passage. How about if we just take it verse by verse and just go by what Jesus said instead of trying to dive deep into this. Let's think about the situation and just go with what He says. So, He says, If anyone would come after me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anybody wants to be one of mine, come after me. First, they have to deny themselves. They have to say no to themselves. No to self. No to their ambition no to their interests, no to their plans, no to their will, no to their desires. If you're going to come after me, Jesus says, you've got to say no to yourself. You've got to deny yourself. Then he says, you have to take up your cross. Now, let's not overanalyze that. Let's think about the situation. You have to take up your cross, he says to them. At that time, if the word cross is mentioned, what are the listeners going to think about? Well, they're going to think about things like suffering. People suffered on a cross. They're going to think about things like dying. Death, people died on a cross. And people suffered and died on crosses because of what? Because of being criminals and being rejected by society. You see, the disciples and those people who gathered there, they wouldn't have analyzed what he's saying, take up your cross. They would think cross. Cross. Suffering, rejection, death. What has Jesus just revealed to his disciples? That he is going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. The very three things that a person at that time would think when a cross was mentioned. Let's not overanalyze. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, if you're going to be one of mine, you've got to say no to you, to yourself. And you have to count the cost and accept the fact that if you say no to yourself and yes to me and follow me, there could be rejection. There could be suffering. <clears throat> and yes, there could even be death. But if you're going to be one of mine, you've got to be all in. Stop thinking about yourself. Deny yourself. Count the cost and be willing to accept what it might mean to belong to me. And then he said, follow me. Follow me. I hope you understand from all your reading of the Gospels that Jesus didn't make it easy to belong to Him. Counting the cost was always part of His message. You know, repent, believe, but count the cost. And here I think He's just saying you've got to say no to yourself. You've got to take up your cross. Understand that this might involve rejection, suffering, and death. And follow me. Then He goes on. He says in verse 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's kind of going back to that deny yourself thing. Jesus seems to be saying, if you want to hang on to your life, if you want to control your own life, if you want to save your life on your own, if you want to do things your way, then you're going to end up losing your life. It's not going to turn out well. But if you're willing to lose your life, give it up. Lay it aside for me and my message. You'll be saved. Your life will be saved. It's a paradox. Doesn't seem to make sense, but it's truth, right? You want to hang on to your life and try to save it? You'll end up losing it. You're willing to lose your life for me? You'll save it. Verse 36 and 37, he asks two questions as he continues. He says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? The soul is the eternal you. The soul is the eternal you that will go on somewhere for eternity. And Jesus asks, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his eternal soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What out there is so valuable that you're willing to grab onto that and lose your soul? The understood answer is there's nothing. There's nothing more valuable than your eternal soul. So part of denying yourself, obviously, is realizing the value of your eternal soul and not hanging on to the things of this world, but letting them go. Because your eternal soul is more important than the things of the world. And then he concludes, 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now we can play around with this pair of verses. But let's take it in the context. Jesus is not talking here. I don't think in the context about Christian people who are ashamed to talk about him. Christian people who are embarrassed to speak about Christ at work. He's not talking about that. That's not the context. The context is really a salvation one. These people he's talking to, they're not Christians. Most of them are Gentiles from Caesarea Philippi. The word ashamed here doesn't mean embarrassed. The word ashamed means to have fear, And shame and based on the fear and shame to be unwilling to do something and so he's talked about how you can belong to him really how you can be saved salvation and now he says if you are too fearful and there's so much shame in you that you aren't willing to deny yourself you aren't willing to accept the risk. You aren't willing to give up the things of the world to follow me. Then when I return, I will say no to you too. Never knew you. So really, Jesus is presenting salvation. The best way he could, pre-cross and resurrection. And it's about saying no to yourself, counting the cost. Be willing to give him your all, even though you know it could involve rejection, suffering, maybe even death, especially for the people at that time. And to stop trying to save your own life and hang on to your own life, but to give it up for Jesus. And to realize your eternal soul is more important than anything this world offers that you'd want to hang on to. And then the warning. If you're too ashamed, you're too fearful, you're too proud to do that, then I will not accept you when I return. That's a pretty good salvation sermon there. And then you have chapter 9, verse 1, which really shouldn't be in chapter 9, because it ends what he's saying. He says, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And uh, we could go on and on trying to think about what he's referring to there. Uh, some people think it's the resurrection, that that's when the kingdom comes in its power, and there will be people he's talking to there still alive. It can't be the second coming because everybody he was talking to are long gone. But some people think it's the resurrection. Some people think it's what comes next, the transfiguration, when Jesus will be seen by three of them at least in a glorified state on the mountaintop. Some people think he's referring to um, Acts 1.8, when the Spirit comes and indwells all God's people and the kingdom spreads throughout the world with power. And there'll be many of these alive at that time. Um, Some think he's talking about when the kingdom and all its power comes into individual lives, that there are people standing there that before they die, they're going to respond to what he just said. And the power of the kingdom is going to be a part of their lives. We don't know what he exactly meant. We don't want to get distracted by that. Because the main point of this is what happened before that statement. This was a pivotal point for the disciples. Surrounded by reminders of Baal, the god Pan, and the temple of the emperor of Rome, they declare Jesus is the Christ. Not Baal, not Pan, not the emperor. Jesus is the Christ. And then it's a pivotal point because Jesus now begins to talk about the mission and lets them know he's going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. Peter doesn't like that. doesn't go along with what they just declared, that he's the Christ. So he rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes him right back. You're talking like a human being. You're putting your interests ahead of God's. And then he takes the opportunity, for the first time at least in Mark's record, to in detail reveal how one is saved. And it's through denying yourself, counting the cost, being willing to accept the risk, take up your cross and follow. And to stop hanging on to your own life, trying to save your own life, but to give it up for Christ and it will be saved. To realize the value of your eternal soul and that there's nothing in this world that you would want to hang on to that is more valuable than your eternal soul. And if you're not willing to accept that, if you're not willing to say yes to Jesus and follow him, if you're too afraid, too ashamed, too proud, then Jesus says, when I come back, I won't accept you either. That decision is so important. So, do you remember a pivotal point like this in your life? Obviously, the people who stood earlier as we celebrated their spiritual birthday, they remember back in March or April at some time, that was a pivotal point, right? It was this pivotal point. When you gave up your life to give it to Christ. You repented, you believed, and you were all in with Jesus. And we celebrate that with you. The rest of you, do you remember this pivotal point? When you confessed Jesus as Christ, sought his forgiveness, and entrusted your life with him. Or could today be that pivotal point? Could today be that turning point when you surrender your life to Christ? You say no to yourself, no to the world, and you accept the risks, but you're all in. And you trust your life to Jesus. That would be a pivotal point, friends. It could change your life it can drastically impact the direction of your life from this day on and be a reference point. And next year when we celebrate spiritual birthdays, you will stand because it was in March of 2021 that you made a decision that became the turning point in your life, a decision for salvation, to say yes to Jesus. May it be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you so much for salvation. Father, many of us just rejoice because we think back to that turning point where we made that decision to be all in, to seek your forgiveness, to deny ourselves and say yes to Jesus and to follow him. Thank you for what's happened in our lives since, how it's impacted our lives. Father, may that happen for someone here today. May you move them today, like you've moved so many others, to realize there is nothing more valuable, nothing worth hanging on to compared to the salvation of their eternal soul through Jesus. And may today be their pivotal point. In Christ's name, amen.
0: Amen. Would you stand and I'm forgiven. (laughs) Let's just keep giving it back to him. I have so appreciated worshiping with you today.